0: Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Often when we you know, come together in this monastery, it's at a time when we practice meditation. A lot of our uh, teaching is about meditation instruction. It's the, the thing that attracts people because it's there's a sense of stillness and uh, serenity that's kind of in that in that Im- image, that impression. Something that we really long for: the sense of uh, stillness and simplicity and Serenity. Mm. And when you see a group of people sitting still, they get that that impression. Until you look in your own mind and you see it's not still or serene. <laughs> it's all murky mumbling around. Mm. Yeah. So of course, meditation is... is uh, very important, because it's the way we get a much more direct review of our experience. Directly reviewing it rather than thinking about it. Um, just seeing directly how the mind is, how the body actually is. Even though that, that seeing sometimes isn't always so agreeable. The mind can seem very confused or Dull, sleepy. Sometimes meditation is about as interesting as watching a cricket match on a, <laughs> on a slow wicket, you know. Doc. No, doc. <laughs> no runs. Just that sense of something repeated over and over again. It doesn't seem to be going very far. Mm. So, in a way, it is a time when we can directly look into our experience. There's no particular time involved. There's no, you know, nothing we have to try to make, um, perform or achieve. We do begin to sort of like putting a review into just the way that one's mind is operating or this experience of mind. And one thing it has is a sense of a continuum to it. Always seems to be continuing, flowing on, this and that, and this and that, and this and that, this and that, subtle, gross, happy, sad, anxious, worried, curious, inspired, disappointed. It's flowing on, it's a continuum to it. Mm. This continuum continue of mental flow, which is often referring to events and experiences that we seem to have had, it creates this impression of a permanent, ongoing entity. Self, myself. This is my mind. This is my. This is what I am. My mind is like this. I am this. It gives that. It's not even an idea. It's a very natural reflex assumption we have this ongoing continuum of mind and it's really this ongoing continuum of mind that has to be um, penetrated so obviously our practice has two aspects of it it's made an ongoing continuum at least as pleasant and as steady and as manageable as possible so it's something that isn't running berserk is at least kind of happy or serene or we feel some uplift from it. We have skillful intentions, we have calm moods, we have a sense of steadiness and stillness, we have a quality of warm-heartedness. These are the the assets that can come from correctly managing the mind in meditation. Mm. The other aspect is beginning to um, release this continuum from being so so solid and so continual, so the mind the mind begins to cease uh, or break or have almost like you know instead of this being this continual flow, there is penetration something deeper. And what really helps is when we bear in mind that the meditation experience, the meditation practices in our teaching, in our way, of, are really sitting with a much wider uh, training context, guideline context of eightfold path, right view. Right attitude or right resolve, particular ways in which we, where we're coming from in our thinking our attitudes, sammasankappa. Whether our attitudes are generally based on goodwill, on compassion, on non-sensuality, not being geared up to the sense world. Whether our attitudes are really based on that, and our directives are based on that. Right speech or Speech that is comes from those places. Speech that's useful. Speech that's purposeful. Speech that is just, you know, bringing something helpful into relationship. You know, when we speak, we put something in our minds in somebody else's mind. That is a very powerful act, to be engaged isn't it, we take it for granted because we're talking all the time and yet if one recorded everything one said, you think how much of this would you really feel, this is what I like to put in somebody else's mind maybe a percentage of it some of it is just nothing special, some of it is directly just filling the time you know right action action that's again based on these wholesome root intentions, attitudes, right livelihood, right effort and so on. So really this sense of the Eightfold Path and how right at the beginning of that and in fact at the end of it is right view. Right view is the beginning, you know, the thing that really sets it going, we see um, karma, cause and effect. There's something good that we can do with our thinking, with our speech, with our bodies. There's something harmful that we can refrain from or restrain with our thoughts, with our speech, with our bodies. There is such a thing as skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome. And they're not just judgments. They're not just social Etiquette. They're actually, um, you know, acting upon them br- definitely brings around an unpleasant and confused result, unskillful. We feel confused, we feel unsatisfied, we feel impassioned, we feel worried. It doesn't take us to a good place. The unskillful, you know, such as, um, you know, terms of speech, Cursing, swearing, lying, gossiping—you know—we've all done these things. You know, recognize sometimes the results. You immediately sense, "Oh, that was God! That was bad. Why? You know, why it's so bad about it? <laughs> really, to know the unwholesome was unwholesome. Where does this take me? What do I feel like at the end of it? Yeah. You know? Do I feel steadier, more spacious, more warm, more flowing, or do I feel uh, confused off balanced, reactive? does my speech respect somebody else or does it just dump on somebody else does it you abuse somebody else's mind or make good use of it so we see the the unwholesome. Well, this is something I can recognise because I get the feeling for there's something about a human being. The amazing capacity of awakening is that we can witness and get a full sense of the effects of our thoughts, our speech, our actions, which other creatures don't. And this was the. Um, the second great realisation the Buddha had, the realisation of good and evil, you could say. You may not think that's such a big realisation, but to really know, not just whether somebody else blames you or not, whether you get punished or not, whether it's against the law or not, whether somebody else approves you or not, whether you make it happy or not, but to really know, to get a feeling for what the unskillful quality is, you know, a sense of something that is confused, um, doesn't give rise to wholeness, is self-centered, is projected, is uh, you yeah, it's distorted, mm. and sometimes directly malevolent. Mm. To really get a sense for that, it takes quite a lot of clarity. Clearly, people would not act in wholesome ways if they really knew the results of it. You know, if they really knew that unwholesome thoughts and speeches and actions cause them pain and uh, long-term suffering and degrade them and wear down their, their potential, they wouldn't do it. Well, obviously, a lot of people don't know that. Most of us don't know that fully. We know some things, like maybe swearing, we're not going to do that anymore, but still we can, uh, you know, scapegoat, belittle, trivialise, dismiss, you know, unskillful speech habits like that, without really recognising what we're doing, playfully sometimes, passing the time sometimes, got nothing to do, let's sit around and chat about somebody else, make fun of somebody else or whatever, you know. So even unskillful speech is just passing the time, filling up the space. So, you know, one of our understandings of right view is to really look into the consequences of thoughts, speech, action, karma, cause, effect. This is right view, to take this as an important um, function. This means we are actually moving outside of the meditation hall and contemplating what we talk about, who we talk to, why we talk, what's happening for us when we talk, what are the results of that what do we do do with our time Uh, how much of it is just sort of filling in some space, how much of it is geared by uh, anxiety, Pressures of one kind, driven senses, feelings one should get something going or do something. Mm-hmm. How much of it is that? How much of it is actually just about supporting the sense of a continuum? With the right view, we start with at least saying, and something beautiful about this, saying you know, everything I do counts. So that places us right at the centre of our life. Everything I think and do counts. It's all important. This is where it really. This is what's really important. Just this. Just what's happening. What's arising through this body, mind, speech, actions, thoughts, attitudes. This is really important. I'm not just. You know, it's not just trivial. And it doesn't mean making that heavy, but it means almost like taking oneself seriously. There's a certain responsibility, a certain, you could say, even dignity that is offered by that. You know, we may think, oh, I've got nothing special to say. I'm just the kind of, you know, basic education or brilliant mind. I've got nothing special to say. I've got no great ideas. I don't know profound things. No, that doesn't count. Mm. We're looking at is one speech that which uh, is wholesome or unwholesome. Is it that which um, has these right attitudes in it? That's what counts, not whether you can give a brilliant lecture. So this means, in a way, we can all whatever we speak. You know, if we're just talking about. You know, how to do the gardening. Still, we can cultivate right speech with that. What's gentle? What's uh, a speech that also listens? So, when we speak, we listen. How's that affecting the other person? What's helpful? How can we bring it across? Yeah. So, then that speech is like a, a special thing that we do. And maybe one of the ways we encourage right speech is to speak less so that it becomes something that's more special, not just, you know, where it is really almost an overflow of nervous energy, just that one's anxious, one's worried, one's uncertain, so just bab- talk, 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 to find something. Yeah. So, you know, just knowing to, what's really important, what's useful. And then when we cultivate that, certainly I think we start to see, well, it's amazing how much when you start to refrain from careless speech or just, you know, casual speech, um, the effect. You start to listen a lot more to your own thoughts because they're no longer just spilling out. And we begin to see perhaps... A lot of our, uh, where our, our speech instincts come from are, oh, you know, wanting to make friends, um, wanting some contact, uh, wanting to be understood, wanting to be heard, uh, wanting certainty, you know, could you give me some information, could you, you know, uh, wanting to feel one belongs, you know, I'm here, I'm steady, I'm okay, I'm accepted, Um Wanting some entertainment sometimes. Or to somehow lessen the burden of one's own mind by having someone else share that, the problems, our sorrows, and so on. This is, you know, it's, it's good to know that, isn't it? So if we are doing that, at least we know what we're doing. Saying, excuse me, I'd like some to share my problem. Okay, fine. and That's okay, we can do that. But we just begin to recognize what's going on so at least uh, we have some sense of awareness of what we're doing, why we're doing it and then what is really necessary, how much is what's useful because you begin to also realise that the more you speak probably the less attentive one is to that speech, it becomes habitual So the Buddha often, certainly, recommended, you know, to talk for the monks anyway, just to talk on Dhamma, on the teachings, on the progress, on the path, on practice, or also otherwise to, you know, talk on what needs to be done, functional, but then to otherwise is to cultivate speech restraint. So we learn to listen much more also. So, this is what we call the foundational, often called mundane, right view. Mundane sounds slightly dismissive, um, that's perhaps an unfortunate word, but it's foundational. It's the one that any one of us can practice. We don't have to be, you know, deep, deep, be profound. We can all practice listening to how we speak, contemplating how we act, how much of it is. Useful or restless or skillful, and begin to recognise something more than just moral good and bad, but also things like unskillful um, roots such as worry, doubt, guilt, regret. Um, you know, and this is this is not helpful. So when we're acting from those places then we are actually perpetrating a continuum that goes on in that way. Covetousness. What occurs when one speaks and thinks in such ways is that the continuum of one's mind is shaped by that dominant tendency. This is karma, cause and effect. It means if I continue to speak in ways that are trivializing or blaming, then what occurs is I strengthen that tendency. That becomes who I am, who I experience myself as, someone embittered, you know, someone who's fault-finding and so forth. That is karma, cause and effect. We become our minds, and our minds become what leads them, which is our attitudes, our thoughts, our speech. covetousness, wanting wanting things, wanting to be wanting to have wanting to have more wanting to be something and what we notice with this is that as we act upon it we never get to the end of it that is, you know, when one feels a sense of blaming and and, um, complaining and so forth that following it doesn't take you to a place of resolution when we experience and we talk and we think about things that we need and want and haven't got, and how much better it could be, and you follow that, it doesn't take you to a place where you feel, ah, oh, that's it, I'm okay now. It just per- continues that particular model. You know, it, it just pertains. We're, we're sustaining a continuum of a dissatisfied self. And it will never be other than that. It will, ne- it will find new topics to feel dissatisfied by, but it will be never be anything other than a dissatisfied, hungry, needing. Still haven't quite got it. If only I had, I would. If only I hadn't, I would be by now. Regret. If i only, when I was 25, I'd done this instead of that. I'd be all right now, and so forth it's, You know, it just goes on. There isn't an end to it. There's no way it can end. That's karma. it goes like that by following it. you don't end it, and at least we could think, well, if I'm gonna have something more more of a continuum, let's at least make it a good one. if <laughs> I' gonna have to live with this. <laughs> you know this is what we call foundational or mundane right view is uh you know I'm gonna keep going, then let's try and make it something that feels kind of contented uh well, okay, I didn't get everything, but I got enough to get by on. I could have had a lot worse. That's not bad. Uh, grateful, um, compassionate, you know, to others, patient, forgiving. Mm, make it something that I feel quite enjoy living with. I don't mind living with a mind like that. Yeah. So that when one meditates, you know, we come into that continuum and it feels, you know, pleasant place to be, resilient it's got some resources in it and that continuum of mine will be very much fed sustained by how we think, our attitudes our emotional um, leanings, biases inclinations and the way we speak and the way we act all that will sustain that continuum and so that's who we become And of course, you know, you can see it, look around, see the people who are driven to perform, to get better, never get to a place of completion. Remember this mountaineer, this incredible mountaineer, Reinhold Messner, I think his name was? This was, climbed all these. 18,000-meter mountains in the world, you know, frostbite lost most of his fingers and all that. So he was always climbing mountains, you know, that you'd... Then he you had to climb with no oxygen after he'd done them once, you know, just climbing them with, with, with oxygen wasn't enough, so you climbed climb without oxygen to make it a bit tougher. And he still had this feeling of inadequacy. Uh, there was this story one time he was just stuck in his tent somewhere up a mountain, just crippled with this feeling of inadequacy because he couldn't, you know, he'd never achieved enough. And, like, you know, there aren't any more mountains. (laughs) And they aren't any higher than Everest. That's as high as it gets. Once you've done it once without oxygen, what are you going to do then, one leg? (laughs) When is enough? When does the second most wealthy person in the world not wish to be the, first, the most wealthy person in the world? i only got 42 billion. You know, but somebody's got more than me. You know, it becomes absolutely meaningless because, you know, from the outside you can see how ridiculous it is. But for that person, their sense of self is so formed on being, you know, on needing to be more that it never. That's what it becomes, that which needs to be more than it is. That's all it can ever become, that which needs to be more than it is. <laughs> yeah. So when we steer that, uh, we recognize, well, if I want to be something more than I am, can I at least be more contented? <laughs> that might be a good direction to go to. More patient, more equanimous, more happy just to be a moment at a time. You know, and seeing what we, the skillful karma of beginning to let go of the future, let go of the past, uh, let go of those tendencies what it takes to forgive, to relinquish, to have made peace with the past, to have a sense of just openness to the future, to be contented, to have this quality. And when we practice uh, good karma like that, then mindfulness comes into play because it means that we're starting to become more stable in the present to really see rather than the movements of the future to get to get on to make this happen to this blur of continuum can I just take one step at a time, say one word at a time, make one You know, spoonful of food at a time. It doesn't have to be slow, but at least one's conscious of it. So you feel that push and you check it. Restraint. So I think one of the really powerful practices that becomes is very uh, fundamental in monastic training is just to learn to eat one spoon of food at a time. It doesn't sound like that much of an attainment, till you try and do it. (laughs) Particularly when you just have uh, that—you know—you've got a cut-off time. This is you. You've got this main meal. You might have a little bit of something else in the morning. You've got this main meal. You're pretty hungry. But even if you're not hungry, that hungry, how easy is just to start putting it down, putting it down, and thinking about where you're going next, or getting on with something else, yeah. Or, or, you know because you, you it's got a momentum of movement to get keep moving keep moving keep moving on moving on why where's there to go you know as if nothing will happen unless you keep moving hmm? but something's going to happen for sure you don't have to keep the wheels turning so what's it like not to necessarily Eat at an incredibly slow pace, but just to take a spoonful of food, chew it, swallow it, make the next one, chew it, taste it, feel it going down, next one. And just releasing that pressure to rush on, to get it done, to get it finished, get over with. Next thing, next thing, tidy up, clean up, do the washing up, have a cup of tea, sit down, read a magazine, next thing. All innocent enough. But with mindfulness, we're starting to develop a kind of uh, a tool that's transforming karma from good karma into the karma that ends karma. And what it starts to end, or give us ways of bringing to an end, is this continuum, this ongoing rush, this ongoing slide, this ongoing inclination, could we just take one moment at a time? That's what it's saying with uh, mindfulness, just pausing, being with something more fully in the present. And contemplating, as we do, certainly when you practice eating a meal like that or drinking a drink like that, just taking one sip, pulling it down, taking another one, pull it down, notice when you feel thirsty, think I've had enough, that's enough, finished. You know, that. When you notice, when you do that, you can really sense this pressure to get on, to keep going, to get it down, to get to the next thing. What's that? There's no reason for it, it's just a habit. And in that habit, which doesn't seem that, it's not immoral, in that habit is the pressure of what's called becoming, which is a movement, in a time movement, a movement of time. Like an ongoing push. There's no rationale that we can rationalise it, but it's so innate that we really hardly even see it as anything that could a problem or certainly anything that could stop but then you might notice perhaps you know what happens when there's a moment when you you do stop when the conversation stops when you nothing to think about for a second or two stops Ooh. And then something that wants to fill the gap, because in that stopping, you feel a little bit, well, I mean a bit nervous, perhaps. You know what it's like when you come into a strange place, like perhaps a monastery, and for a moment you don't quite know what to do. Whether you're doing something right or wrong, whether you're welcome or you're, you're supposed to do something polite or religious or something or what. And this moment you pause, you what am I, what am I, what is this? this anxiety comes up. Or perhaps when you're t- talking to someone and actually the conversation stops and you just notice there's somebody there. You haven't got anything to say at the moment. Uh, anxiety. Fill it up. Say something. Hmm? I guess in a lot of situations that pause never occurs and in so in our training we we look to create those pauses to let something end to finish the meal and stop to finish the cup of tea and stop finish the thing I'm talking about and stop notice there's nothing to talk about right now and that's not a problem or a blame or a you know, just perhaps there isn't always something to talk about. doesn't have to be all the time. Something to talk about. Something to do. Something to think about. Something to plan. Something to sort out. Something to organise. Something to straighten up. Something to tidy up. Something to get clear. Something to relinquish. Something to accomplish. Something to make sure we're doing. What would it be like if there wasn't all that? Just for a moment. We could say, let's... That just for we'll have a 10 second break from sangsara you know running on and really just open into that moment pause Socially it could be quite embarrassing because we so used to having something to go say you know' feel a bit awkward perhaps but start with oneself just that moment when you put the book down Hmm. we finished that we picked it up fully we did it completely we got to the end of it we put it down And probably what uh, many people would notice is when we stop something, it would be either, well, what should I do now? Or how was that? Or should I tell somebody else about it? Or what to do next? What's the next thing I should be doing? That's, that's, That's that kind of ongoing continuum. What would it be like to be there and just relax? Just relax that. Just to recognize that this Is suffering. This is the origin of it. This is the origin, not of, well, actually also of anguish, but of the subtler kind of suffering, the sense of restless, ongoing, not completed, the sense of a continuum itself is suffering. Because it's a continuum that has no resolution, has no conclusion, doesn't go anywhere special. It goes round and round. It's that. So this itself is what uh, it called the dukkha, the dukkha of becoming, of being. And there's a thirst for it, a reflex that wants to fill up the gaps, the spaces. So in our practice, as we develop or contemplate things like actions simple actions speech thoughts and you know as when meditation often there's that sense of wishing to quiet thoughts down but that's probably has to be taken carefully probably the first thing to do is to think clearly you can't just switch it off just try to think more deliberately, clearly and strategically what's useful to consider deliberately consider things deliberately consider purpose, aim deliberately consider karma deliberately consider there are beings as a possibility for enlightenment deliberately consider this inevitability of decease death let the mind rest in it, let the mind take that on. What does it mean, death? It means no future. Uh, It means this apparent continuum is going to the end of a diving board. That's that's where it goes. And even then it continues. Uh, It doesn't get to the finale. So where does it stop? Where is the end? Where is the resolution? It's only through a different direction. No longer forward, no longer onwards, but inwards. Deepening into the present. Looking for those places where we can pause, check, release, hold a space. So it's starting to penetrate this continuum. It's called samsara. And this is the uh, view, you know, of insight, the view of the, the path view. Looking into the constituents of an experience we're having. So we're eating something. There's the sensations. There's the uh, taste consciousness. There's disagreeable or agreeable feelings. There's impressions. There's a perhaps delight or happiness or distaste. That's what makes it up. Isn't somebody there doing it? When we're walking, there's the sensations, there's a sense of momentum, there's energy in the body. There's feelings, feeling, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, physical sensations, there's certain movement, drive, energy. There isn't somebody somebody else there you know, sitting inside it. There isn't somebody walking. There's just that walking. And What is the somebody that, when there's somebody walking, what is the somebody? The somebody is thinking about it, thinking about where they're going, uh, thinking about what a nice day it is. So, so, somebody who's walking is actually somebody who isn't walking. They're thinking about the birds or the trees, where they're going. They're not really there in walking. So, he's saying, Well, just when you walk, just do walking. See who's left, see who's there. And make walking something that is purely walking. It's not walking some super special way, walking. Uh, in a very you know where there's a whole sense of self preoccupation. We're just walking simply, naturally, understanding, contemplating what what walks? What the, what does the walking? What's what's experienced as walking? Yeah. You know? Feelings. It's wonderful. The system. So it doesn't repudiate Walking or eating or talking, but values them as rather special things arising with some sense of space and silence, rather than a preoccupation. So this is what we call a, a you know a path, because it's beginning to use this very. Uh, foundation we have of physical form, body, sensations, energies to see or to begin to undercut this push of becoming the continuum, continuity the self-impression with its future and its comparisons and its measurements and its so on there's a simplicity about it kind of innocence So that when one sits to meditate, body, breathing, the residues of the day come up, thoughts, memories. But when there isn't a the continuum. There isn't a foundation for them to rest on. There isn't a foundation for them to be enhanced and proliferated over. They're just like uh, sparks fly through the air but find no straw to land on. So they just tend to empty out. Use your meditation just to empty out. The sparks fly through the air. There's no straw. There's no grass. There's no wood. No dry wood. The dry wood is the continuum. This sense we have, this urge we have, this preoccupation that's there called being or becoming. And without that recommendation of right view, it's very easy to spend one's time doing meditation. And meditation becomes another occupation of self, another occupation where I did meditate, how long I've been meditating, I'm really good at meditating, she's really good at meditating, how can I be better at meditating, I'm never going to be good at meditating, meditating doesn't work for me, I've been doing this for 15 years, meditating, I'm going to get better at meditating, I can't meditate, I should meditate, I'll try this to meditate, it becomes another doing, me doing another thing and as we know, what's per, what's perpetuating that is this same experience of the unsatisfied self trying to find the right thing to do to get the feeling completion, and there isn't one. So our, you know, and it actually that's that's a very um, unusual, perhaps. Challenging thing to consider I mean, there's no such thing as a good meditation. There's good enough meditations, but the with uh, right view you begin to get a sense of how this, what this is about, and how it fits in with the rest of your life. Is our aim here is to start to look into who's meditating? You know? Why should there be somebody meditating when there's breathing and physical sensations and energies moving and feelings? Why does there have to be somebody else there? That's enough already. (laughs) So what's called the more developed right view is to recognize there's this... uh, Emptiness, openness, or cessation—the non-full, non-nameable, non-manifest, non-something that isn't becoming anything, isn't occupied, isn't territory, isn't colonized, doesn't belong to anybody, doesn't own anything. Let mm-hmm. we see the life from that perspective. But of course, this is a matter of realisation. What can be, what we can work with, what we can uh, practice with, is just learning to do what we do one step at a time. And keep your eye out for that sense of the continuum, the ongoing, the future, the past, the time span. And, you know, Meditation isn't really a development in terms of time. It's more a development in terms of space and depth. Inquiry. Space through tranquility gives you more a sense of, you're less pressurised, you feel more spacious and open. And penetration through Insight. So right view is said to be um, fully developed through five faculties, things we can bear in mind. One is one learns, one reads, one studies, one thinks. This is what right view is. It's karma, cause and effect. It means pay, pay attention, be careful about this. And there's also a karma that leads to the end of karma. There is this, an action that could be done that takes one out of this Endless going on of cause and effect. This is something to at least bear in mind. Learning. You know, concept. Discuss it. Talk about it. Establish it. Think it over. Discuss it in your own mind. What's this about? Discuss it with other people. What's that about? What do you see? What does that mean? Hmm? Morality. Right view is, is deepened strength and strengthened by Morality. Because morality will continue to uh, put a hold on unskillful actions. Because it will say, hey, this is going to cause me pain. Morality is linked to right view. Tranquility, calming the mind, supports right view because we get a chance to see things more fully, steadily, deeply intimately, directly, and insight develops right view because we really get to penetrate this matrix, this compounding of sensations and thoughts and feelings into a blur called myself. We start to penetrate that. And this is how right view is fulfilled through these factors. So right view is the beginning, the overseer of the path and the realization of right view is to really see the ending of suffering or the ending of this ongoingness, to see where that ends, to see there's an emptiness, an openness, you know, where this flowing flood stops. Mm. And everything that we do that leads to that is worthwhile. There's nothing nothing more worthwhile than to really get a sense of that. This is where the burden gets laid down. It's worthwhile. It's worth tailoring one's life. Giving up things, bearing with things, tailing one's life, tailing one's speech, tailing one's thoughts, one's actions, in order to put the burden down, the weight down. This is the offering, this is the recommendation. So I offer this for your reflection.